Today is part two in the study of battle in the brain. In our first study, we discovered that when our first parents were created, they had a perfect balance between their thoughts and their feelings. And because everything they saw and heard and touched and tasted and smelled stimulated only good thoughts, their emotional control center, or that amygdala that we've talked about, actually produced only good feelings. The more Adam and Eve matured and grew in their personal trust relationship with God, the more their characters developed in harmony with Him. In other words, as they communed with God and beheld His creative power and the constant beauty that surrounded them, their thoughts impacted their amygdalas, which in turn responded by bringing forth good feelings and emotions which were in perfect harmony with their thoughts. In time, this cycle would have formed a mature character after the divine pattern. In other words, the character of Christ would have been perfectly reproduced in Adam and Eve. Let me say it in another way. Had their five senses continued working to stimulate good thoughts, and had their good thoughts continued working to impact good emotions, such as love and joy and peace and so on, something else would have happened. Their godly emotions within their amygdalas would have worked to produce physical reactions and responses, which if repeated again and again, would have actually developed good habits of behavior. Thus, their habitual thoughts and feelings combined would have formed godly characters, making them eternally secure in an earthly paradise where God's presence and his voice would have always been welcomed. But one day, and you know the story, Eve heard a different voice. She looked, and there in the tree of knowledge she saw a winged serpent, which seemed to have the power of speech. She not only smelled the fresh fruit of the tree, she touched the fruit, and then she tasted the fruit. All of her senses were telling her this fruit was not only good, it had the ability to exalt her into a higher sphere than she had ever experienced before. But the moment Adam and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, something happened in their brain which has affected every child that has ever been born except for one. In short, the human mind experienced evil or sin. It knew for the very first time what disobedience felt like. For man had cut himself off from God. He had chosen another leader whose total focus was self. When Eve stood before the tree of knowledge, her perfect human thoughts were influenced by the thoughts of an evil angel who used a snake, if you please, as his medium. Once Eve's mind chose to act on those thoughts, her emotional control center was impacted with feelings and emotions never before experienced. 
For the very first time in human existence, both Adam and Eve understood that evil had the power to separate and destroy. God's original plan, may I suggest, was to keep them from ever experiencing evil. For according to the Bible, evil had already broken out in heaven where God's first created beings or angels lived. And you can read about that in Revelation chapter 12. It was Lucifer, the one whom God had placed over all the angelic beings that first experienced this evil. According to Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, rather than loving or honoring and worshiping his creator, Lucifer used his God-given freedom of choice to try and overthrow God's government. Now, even though Lucifer was unsuccessful in his attempt to take over God's kingdom, which, by the way, was founded on the principle of an eternal law of loving obedience, he did manage to take one-third of the heavenly angels with him in his rebellion against God. In order to maintain God's heavenly gift of free choice, God created in man the same right that he had given to the angels. And in order to provide Adam and Eve with the opportunity to exercise their freedom of choice, God placed a special tree in the midst of the garden and told them not to eat of it. That, beloved, was the only restriction he ever gave them. It was a simple request By their creator God. By choosing not to eat of the tree, they could actually demonstrate their love and trust in God. On the other hand, by choosing to eat of the tree, they could show their lack of love for him, their distrust in him, and their personal desire to live independent of him. And thus the tree of knowledge of good and evil was put in the garden as an opportunity for Adam and Eve to demonstrate their personal freedom of choice and as a constant reminder that God does not force any of his created beings to love him. For true love, beloved, can never be won by force or authority. It must be a choice of free will on the part of one person toward another. On that foundation, God's eternal kingdom has always existed and always will exist. Unfortunately, The very day that Adam and Eve chose to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was the day they began to die. For in that single act, they chose not only to demonstrate their lack of love for God, but their distrust in Him as well. And by choosing to separate themselves from the giver and sustainer of all life, they inadvertently chose to die. Had it not been for the fact that God had already devised a substitutionary plan to save man, should he fall, Adam and Eve would have died that very day in the garden. But thank God, he intervened. Or you wouldn't be hearing this message, and I wouldn't be giving it. According to the Bible, God was not willing to let Adam and Eve go without giving them another opportunity to demonstrate their love for their Creator. And so it is with us. God is not willing to let us go without giving us an opportunity to demonstrate our love for Him. And that, really, beloved, is why the Bible was written. It was given to let us know where we came from, why we're here, and what our future holds depending on the choices that we make and are free to make. 
But I'm getting ahead of my story. I'd like for us to go back for a moment to Adam and Eve, our first parents. As they left their garden home and entered the vast wonders of their new world, they wore the skins of animals that had died in order that they might be covered. The skins not only covered their nakedness and shame, but kept them from the chill that pervaded the very atmosphere which surrounded them. They knew that life would never be the same again. For the first time, the different seasons were actually experienced. As the leaves began to turn color and die, Adam and Eve wept. For they realized it was their choice to eat of the tree that had caused all living things to experience separation and death. But when the life of their son Abel was taken from them by the hand of their oldest boy, it broke their hearts beyond expression. The emotional trauma of that day was never forgotten as long as they lived. As they buried the lifeless form of their youngest son, a whole new understanding of God's promise flooded their minds. When God said in Genesis 3.15 that he would put enmity or a fixed and rooted hatred between the serpent and the woman and between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, that's exactly what God did. Hot tears, I can imagine, of hatred and bitterness fell to the ground that day from the half-blinded eyes of Adam and Eve where they were confirmed that those who resist God would ultimately die. And in that open field, they found the confirmation of man's growing hatred towards sin and rebellion. And the smoldering altar, which stood nearby the broken body of Abel, it also was a confirmation to Lucifer that his days were numbered. For he too remembered well the promise of God when he cursed the serpent and said God would bruise his head or crush out his life even though he, the serpent, would one day bruise the heel of God or give him a temporary wound after which God would rise again. Having used the snake as his medium, Lucifer would now forever be known as the old serpent or the devil or Satan, the deceiver of mankind. As the lifeless form of Abel was buried in the earth, the reality of the battle between good and evil became a fixed reality in the brain of mankind. Adam not only hated the enemy of God or Satan the serpent, he also hated himself and what he had done by eating the fruit. There were even moments like in the garden where he found himself angry at God. For if God had not made the woman, right? And Eve also experienced the same emotions for she had implied if God had not made the serpent. And so the battle in the brain raged on between good and evil. Their new thoughts and feelings were expressed openly and experienced in a way that made them afraid. They realized there was now a conflict deep within them which they were powerless to control. While a part of them wanted to love God and obey Him, their new nature, which was now fallen, stood in opposition to such love and spiritual things. In fact, this new fallen nature was so opposed to God that it was not even subject to His law of love. Nor could it ever be. And that's why Adam and Eve had to be born again. They needed God to recreate within them a brand new heart that would bring a spiritual balance once again within their thoughts and feelings. For the next 2,000 years, the battle in the brain continued to be played out in the lives of Adam and Eve's descendants. 
It was a battle between good and evil, or between God and Satan over the minds of men and women and boys and little girls. And then in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 7, we read these words. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was evil, only evil, continually. This passage, I discovered, was rather interesting. It says the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Modern science would tell us that our thoughts are generated in the frontal lobe of our brain, while our emotions are seated largely in the amygdala. What I see here in the Genesis story is that after 2,000 years of moral degeneration, mankind had come to the place where both the thoughts and feelings or the emotions of the human heart were in perfect harmony with each other. In other words, their thoughts and feelings were only evil continually. What God had originally created in the garden had become totally reversed. Where only good thoughts and good emotions were once in perfect balance, now only evil thoughts and evil emotions were in total control. And thus the Bible says in verse 6, that it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them, end quote. How thankful, beloved, we should be for verse 8, which says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What that means is Satan was almost successful in taking control of every mind in that last generation of the antediluvian world. But there was one mind he could not control. And that was the mind of Noah. For Noah had discovered the life-giving power of God's grace and had lived the new life of holiness and purity in an unholy and impure world. And by the way, Noah was not alone. All through the centuries of our old world, we find Adam and Eve and their son Seth and many of his descendants, including Enoch, and his son Methuselah, all having experienced the life-giving power of God's grace in their lives. In short, God had his living representatives in every generation since the day of Adam and Eve until the flood. And according to God's word, beloved, the Bible says that Satan will never be able to claim this world as his. Even though he may capture the attention and eventually even control the great majority of human minds just as he did before the flood, there will be a great multitude which no man can number from all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues who will stand before the throne of God and before this vast universe clothed with white robes and palms of victory in their hands. Revelation 7, 9. Today, Satan is working to capture every mind that he can. He works in a thousand ways and in a thousand forms to snare us, to deceive us, to entice us, to manipulate us, and even use us as pawns to draw others into his kingdom of darkness. Let me share with you again what he did with Eve at the tree. 
Because what he did with Eve, he does with you and me today. He turns our God-given natural senses against us. Let me show you what I mean. We know that what we see and what we hear and what we taste and what we smell all have a connection with our amygdala, which is the emotional control center in our brain. Because of this physical connection between our natural senses and our emotional control center, all Satan has to do is to get us to see certain things or hear certain things which will impact our amygdala. Satan knows once he touches our emotions, hormones will be automatically released, flooding our minds with feelings that will compromise our ability to reason or to think, if you please, and thus we become easy prey to be led into sin. Now just for the record, so you'll get a glimpse of how effective Satan's power over our young generation has become. I want you to listen to these statistics which represent our preteens to our young adults. These are the daily average statistics right across the board. 2.5 hours every day is spent listening to some form of music. Five hours every day is spent in watching movies and or television. 2.7 hours every day is spent surfing the web or playing games online. 38 minutes every day is spent in reading, mostly in a media format. 1.5 hours every day is spent in text messaging. 30 minutes every day is spent on cell phones and not always talking. Today, electronic media has replaced God's original plan for calm, intelligent communication between heaven and earth and between family and friends. Through internet streaming, our voices can actually travel around the world, but it seems no one is really listening, nor do they care. Because throughout our global network, we are all too preoccupied with our own iPods, our own iPhones or iPads or iTunes, MySpace, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and cell phones and Blackberries. My point is simple. If the five senses of our youth are being stimulated with a minimum of 75 hours of media every week, what kind of emotional responses might we expect? To see in their behavior. Do you really think the behavioral disorders that we hear so much about today, including the latest one that involves childhood tantrums, are really disorders? Or are they simply the natural result of overstimulation of the amygdala, which is the emotional control center in the brain? Listen to this statement that was written in the late 1860s. I find it most enlightening in relation to what's happening today. It comes from Testimonies to this Church, Volume 2, page 300, 
47. It says, The brain nerves which communicate with the entire system are the only medium through which heaven can communicate to man and affect his inmost life. Whatever disturbs the circulation of the electric currents in the nervous system lessens the strength of the vital powers and the result is a deadening of the sensibilities of the mind. End quote. With the media bombardment that's taking place in the brains of our youth, beloved, what is the possibility of a spiritual message ever getting through from heaven? Can you see where the Bible tells us to be still? So that we might know God and hear His voice. Beloved, God is not found in the hustle and bustle of a noisy electronic life. That's why God placed our first parents in a garden. But the enemy of God wants to keep us active without intelligent thought or without focus. He wants us to live on the edge, to be anxious, to be stressed and worried, fretful and fearful. He loves to see us perverted and out of control. He's pleased when we're angry, resentful, unforgiving, jealous, envious, or overflowing with revenge and hate. And he loves to reinforce our addictions. For years, excuse me, we as Seventh-day Adventists have been addicted to what we think our last day events. We've often felt compelled to watch the latest DVDs or read the latest books or hear the latest sermons on the unification of the world or the setting up of the Antichrist power and the ushering in of certain religious political laws. What many of us don't realize, however, is that this constant living on the edge of expectancy actually stimulates our body's adrenaline and gives us a religious high which compromises our ability to reason and understand intelligent thought. May I remind you of God's counsel to us as Christians? He told us to occupy until he comes. In other words, we should seek to experience the more abundant life that he came to give us, even here in this old world. In short, we should be anxious for nothing. Worry and stress should be totally removed from the Christian's life. But as long as Satan has his way, that will never happen. The one thing he doesn't want us to experience is victory or a true spiritual balance between our thoughts and our feelings. That's why he works so hard to keep us emotionally out of control. So we will have to come under the management of modern science and find relief through different kinds of therapy or through mind and mood altering drugs, which often result in added addictions. But I have some good news. There's one thing that will destroy Satan's ability to defeat us, and that is the power of spiritual thought. You and I have been given the right to choose who will influence and empower our thinking. All we need to do is exercise our will and ask God to create in us a new heart or a new mind and to renew a right spirit within us. And He, beloved, has promised to do it. 
I love this little statement. It's taken from volume one of the testimonies to this church, page 196. Listen to this. Christ came to change the current or the flow of man's thoughts and affections. When Ezekiel wrote for God in chapter 36, verse 26, saying, A new heart also will I give you, he meant a new mind will I also give you. It's the human mind that's the seat of our emotions and thoughts. And if we ask God to create in us a new mind, we have his personal promise that he will do it. And notice what he does. I'm reading from an old youth's instructor. Some of us remember that magazine. It was dated October 28, 1897. It wasn't that I lived back then. It's just that it had a long term of publication. And this is what it says, and I quote, God has made every provision whereby our thoughts may become purified, elevated, refined, and ennobled. He has not only promised to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but he has made an actual provision for the supply of grace or the life-giving power of God that will lift our thoughts toward Him and enable us to appreciate His holiness, end quote. Profound thought. And when that happens, beloved, we are put on vantage ground, if you please, because God gives us the gift of His Spirit who then will influence and empower our thoughts, destroying Satan's ability to defeat us. Let me show you why our thoughts combined with God's influence and power are so successful in defeating the attacks of Satan. In Daniel 2, follow me now, because this is most interesting. In Daniel 2, verse 29, Daniel tells the king of Babylon, O king, as you were lying upon your bed, thoughts came into your mind about what should come to pass hereafter. And he who reveals secrets made known to you what shall come to pass. But according to verse 27, the wise men that surrounded the king, such as the enchanters, the magicians, and the astrologers or diviners, could not reveal the king's thoughts because thoughts are only read by God. In Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, it says, God is a discerner of the thoughts and the feelings of the heart. Everything is open to the eyes of Him with whom we must give account. What this is saying is that if Satan could have read the thoughts of the king, he would have revealed them to his magicians and diviners. But the biblical bottom line is this. Satan can't read the thoughts of men or women or boys or girls. Praise God. However, he is a keen observer and he watches our actions and listens to our words. Thus he knows exactly how to form his temptations so he can attack us at our weakest points and this is why he's so successful in defeating us. But listen, 
Listen to me, beloved. The good news is once we ask God to create in us a new heart, He sends the life-giving power of His Holy Spirit literally into our thoughts, our minds. What this means is that God will work with us individually and personally, one-on-one. Because He has the ability to read our thoughts and understand our feelings, He can give us the victory every time we are tempted or tested or tried. And that may mean hundreds of times every day. But we can come off more than conquerors. And let me share an extra little nugget right here. Are you aware that we have an average of 70,000 thoughts? pass through our frontal lobe every day? And are you aware that we have around 7 billion of us living on the planet today? And are you aware that God's Spirit doesn't miss a single thought or a single human emotion regardless of what language it's in? I just wanted you to know that God is able to handle your problem if you'll only cooperate with him. And I might add, with the 70,000 little thoughts that bounce in and out of my head every day, I have to confess I need God to help me sort of sort things out and keep me on track. Let's go back to our study. When Satan uses our senses against us, getting us to think an evil thought, the Spirit of God is right there to assist us. He sees the thought. He knows exactly what we've received and immediately prompts us with a response. As an example, if Satan gets us to look at a certain thing which puts an immoral thought in our mind, the Spirit of God sees the thought and instantly brings the words of David or something from God's Word to our mind, such as this, Psalm 101, verse 3, the Holy Spirit will simply throw this thought in opposition to the other thought, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Let me give you another example. If we have a tendency to worry a lot or stress over things, Satan knows that and he will work to give you thoughts that will stimulate anxiety and fear. However, if you have invited God into your life, this is what he will do for you. When an anxious thought comes to you, the spirit knows it because he sees it. He reads that and immediately reminds you to counter it with another scripture such as Philippians 4, 6, which says, be anxious. For nothing, I'll handle it. But let's say you ignore the text that the Holy Spirit gives to you and you don't choose to claim it as yours. Say the anxious thought in your frontal lobe then triggers an emotional response in your control center or in your amygdala. What happens then? It now goes to the emotions and the emotions react and now you're almost out of control but God doesn't leave you. He knows exactly what's taking place in your emotions, in your mind. And once again, he comes to your rescue, sharing with you another promise in order to give you encouragement and power to resist the chemical reaction that has come about as a result of your uncontrolled thoughts. 
This time he may bring to your mind a text such as 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, which says, cast all your care on him. Which simply means all of your frustrations, all of your stress, all of your worry, and all of your anxiety. That's what the word care means. Why? For he cares for you. What a God. And let me say right here, all the Spirit's biddings are enablings for whatever He asks us to do. There is power in His request to enable us to perform the task. All the Spirit's biddings are enablings. For whatever He asks us to do, there is power in His request. It's like God said, and it was. There is power in His request to enable us to perform the very task He's asked us to do. I wish that we as Adventists understood this, that when we invite God's Spirit into our life, He will never leave us or forsake us. He's there, beloved, to stay. He's there to finish the work He came to start in us, and that's to heal our hearts, to restore our brokenness, and to make us whole once again. What we need to do is cooperate with Him and work with Him so that He can finish the task He set out to accomplish in our life. First, we need to learn to listen for his still small voice, which speaks to our conscience that we are being renewed. Second, we need to spend time in his word so we can fortify our minds with the scripture. So when we are tempted with certain thoughts, he can draw from things already in us, thus strengthening our resolve. Thirdly, By working closely with God's Spirit, we can actually crush or put away sinful thoughts and feelings and not even allow them to be expressed in a word or in an action. And once we begin to do this on a regular basis, we'll actually find that we've defeated the enemy. Why? Because Satan is no longer capable of knowing how to prepare his temptations in order to meet our specific needs. Remember, he can't read our thoughts, so he doesn't know if he's getting through to us when we refuse to respond to his suggestions. And so if we'll cooperate with God's life-saving power and choose to claim the promise he gives us and choose to study his word and choose to obey him throughout the day, this is what will happen we will discover that a heavenly atmosphere has been placed about us, making it possible to stay so close to God that in every unexpected trial, our thoughts will turn to Him as naturally as the flower turns to the sun. As we work with God's Spirit to keep our thoughts focused on things that are true and noble and just and lovely and of good reports, He will work deep within our amygdala, Removing our hate and anger, replacing them with love. Removing our fear and anxiety, replacing them with peace. Removing our perversions and addictions, replacing them with real and everlasting joy. And in time, 
we'll actually discover that these changes are taking place. And that what we once loved, we're no longer attracted to. And what we once despised and resisted, we now find ourselves being drawn to. When this healing process is completed, when the thoughts and feelings are once again restored, when man's mortal character reflects the character of his creator, then the battle in the brain will end. Loyalty to God will have been demonstrated and he will be vindicated in the person of his saints. And contrary to popular opinion, this great battle over the minds of men will be completed, finished, before Jesus comes. In fact, in a little way, in a little way, it can be completed right now in your life and mine through what we call justification, which simply means by accepting Jesus as our personal Savior and asking Him to give us a new heart, He will accept us into His kingdom just as if we have never sinned. And as long as we continue to grow in grace day by day and in the life-giving power of His Spirit, as we've talked about already in our study, we will be safe to save. For we are covered by the robe of His righteousness, even though our emotional healing may never be completed this side of heaven. But there is another group. A group of people who will one day stand upon this old earth with their minds completely healed. They will have a perfect balance between their thoughts and feelings. And through the power of God, they will live as Jesus lived while on this earth. In Revelation 14, 1-5, I read about this group of individuals who stand before God with the Father's name written in their minds. They sing a song of victory that no other people will ever sing except for Moses and the Lamb. They stand before men as holy and undefiled. They are redeemed from among the living, and in their mouth is no deceit, no guile, for they are without fault before God Himself. In verse 12, the Bible identifies them as having the patience of the saints. It also says they keep the commandments of God and keep the faith or the trust and belief of Jesus. This same group is identified in Revelation 7, verse 3, as having their minds sealed, settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually. And it says they're also the servants of God. There are 144,000 of them, and upon them the latter rain will fall, or the refreshing power of God. This group of sealed ones will lighten the earth with the glory of God's character. They will give the three angels messages of Revelation 14, 6 through 12, for the very last time. It'll no longer be a warning call then. It'll be a final invitation. And they, this group, will stand before the beast and before his image and before Satan himself and overcome them all. For not even by a thought will they surrender to temptation. For their humanity will be so united to the indwelling Spirit of God that they will be impregnable to the assaults of Satan. 
No matter how great the test, the trial, or the temptation, there is nothing in them that will respond to evil. And they will come off more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, their Lord and King. Aha. Uh-huh. Do you remember this? Our little clear bowl representing our brain. And you notice what's inside. Two little eggs. Here they are, just like new again. This, beloved, is what Jesus will have done for the 144,000. Even though they came into this old world broken and spilled out, having thoughts and feelings they were powerless to control, because of their faithful walk with God, they will be completely restored to reflect His image before the universe. Here they are. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And thus the kingdom of God will be vindicated forever and Satan's kingdom will be destroyed forever. And it's no wonder that Revelation 14.4 tells us that throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, the 144,000 will follow the Lamb wheresoever He goes. My prayer is that that may become our experience from this day on. Let's pray. Father, please, come into our minds and heal us that Jesus might receive all the glory and all the honor, both now and forever. In his name I ask. Amen.